I felt like it was important that we went ahead and cut y'all off, Steve. I was afraid there was going to be <laughs> dancing in the aisles. I saw some people out there wanting to, namely Philip. And uh, next time you get on up there, buddy. Well, my uh, mom is a big fan of the beach. And uh, so when I was growing up, summer vacations uh, were spent all day on some beach somewhere, soaking up the suns, listening to the sound of the ocean, and just being together. And quite frankly, it's the same thing today. That's what family vacations are like for us, some beach somewhere. And the reason is because that's what my mom wants to do. And so that's what we do. Well, many years ago, my mom went on a cruise with some friends, a group of ladies, and uh, she's not much for cruises. But um, the ports of call in the Caribbean were kind of calling her name, right? The fact that she could go and see this beautiful ocean, sit on the beaches and all these beautiful places. And uh, so that was enough. And so she went on this cruise with these ladies. And everything went well, except she did have to go along to get along um, with a couple of the excursions that the group chose. As you've probably figured out by now, my mom would have preferred to just find a taxi, make her way to a beach, and just sit there all day until it was time to head back. But the group decided at this particular stop, they wanted to go and explore or tour the um, ancient ruins of the area. Now, I can just go ahead and tell you that my mom uh, would uh, be as interested in uh, touring ancient ruins as she would be in receiving a hole in her head. But she went anyways. And uh, when she got back from the cruise, she said to me, well, I can tell you, Wes, I'll never do that again. She says, it's ruins. Who wants to see ruins? And I can tell you they are the same everywhere. Just piles of rocks and people telling you what used to be there. And so that's my mom. That's how she feels about ancient ruins. I don't know about you. But today, we are going to return to the ancient ruins of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure if they would have matched the ruins of the ancient Mayans, um, but still, I imagine it was piles of rocks and stones, and there were probably people standing around saying, you know what used to stand here? And so that's what they found there in ancient uh, Jerusalem. Well, if you can picture um, that the walls of Jerusalem have crumbled, uh, the gates have been burned, then you can imagine how vulnerable the people living inside of this city felt, especially in the ancient world. Uh, you know, we had these balloons flying over our country that we couldn't see, but we have a lot of radar to locate what's around us, but not in the days of Nehemiah. It would just be sudden attacks that showed up, particularly if you had no defense around the walls. So the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies, not unlike the nation of Israel is today, um, surrounded by enemies. And people are there establishing their homes in the city because after that exile, groups of people have come back. So they're establishing homes. But who would want to improve your property if you knew that it was vulnerable to attack because the walls are in ruins, the gates cannot be sealed. And so until the walls were rebuilt, why improve the property? Well, that's what this book is all about. It's about rebuilding those walls so that people could live safely inside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah has made his way to Jerusalem as we've been studying through the text the last few weeks. Um, he's inspected the walls. And then last week he called the people to action. Well, today we're going to see him and the people begin the work of rebuilding the walls. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament book. 
and we're going to pick up in chapter 3. Now, we are going to look at the whole chapter, but I am not going to read to you the whole chapter, primarily because it's long and there's a lot of names in there I can't pronounce. So I am going to just start with verses 1 through 8, but we will consider the whole text this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Basadiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to come together and worship. Lord, what a glorious time to consider who you are, to sing praises to your name, and to be reminded of your faithfulness to your people. And Lord, now as we come to sit before your word, we pray that you would come and speak. Father, I pray that I would be conduit for you to speak a word to your people. Lord, we pray that as we turn to the text that it would draw all of us to the cross of Christ in this moment. We love you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship and serve you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. What we discover in Nehemiah 3 is that everyone took part in rebuilding the walls. Rulers, temple workers, um, merchants, families, as well as people who lived outside of the city were serving on the wall, rebuilding the wall. Now, Nehemiah is the critical leader of this project. He's the visionary behind the whole effort. But what would Nehemiah be remembered for if the people did not rise and build? What if nobody followed the leader? John Maxwell writes, if you think you're leading but no one is following, then you are only taking a walk. Well, Nehemiah is leading and the people are following. Nehemiah is the visionary. The people are the wall builders. And so that's the title of our message this morning, Wall Builders. And what I hope that you'll see this morning is that God's people are most effective at fulfilling God's purposes when everybody pitches in and when we all work together as one people. So we're going to study this text by looking at uh, the project, the people, and then we're going to talk about the point. So we'll begin there, the very beginning, with the project. Nehemiah chapter 3 can be a bit tedious and long. 
As you can imagine, it just continues repeating, sounding very similar to those first eight verses that I said over and over and over again. 32 verses, and like some other books of the Bible, it can uh, come across as repetitive. I mean, because we find in the chapter a lot of really difficult names to pronounce. I think I did a fine job, though, of saying some of those, but I still have plenty to go with. I've got to mention a few more, so you be praying for me. And um, it, it can sound repetitive, plus we also have names of strange places. And then it reads the same way. Well, next to him, beside him, was rebuilding, was repairing. It just sounds the same. So just like the middle part of our country, Nehemiah 3 is kind of like flyover land, right? Nobody stops to spend much time here. In fact, one of the uh, most popular books that's been written about Nehemiah in the last uh, several decades is a book by Charles Swindoll called um, Hand Me Another Brick. Maybe you've had that, read that book before. I read it for the first time maybe about 15 years ago. Great book. But if you read through that book, you will notice Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll skips over Nehemiah chapter 3. So right now you may be thinking we are in for a real treat or this is going to be real boring. And I'm not sure which. And so uh, you just bear with me. Nevertheless, we are going to trudge through Nehemiah chapter 3. Now it's long and tedious, but what we find here is it's very organized. The work, the workers, and even the way that Nehemiah describes the work is organized. He opens the chapter in verse 1 uh, by telling about the work that took place at the northeast portion of the wall of Jerusalem. And um, then he works his way around the city kind of in a counterclockwise. I was thinking, I've got to kind of show this to you. Okay, So he starts here on the city, and if you can imagine the walls, he's going to move counterclockwise, describing everything that happens along the way. And then in verse 32, he arrives back there at the beginning at the Sheep Gate. Um, verse 1, he's at the Sheep Gate. That's where he is. The Sheep Gate uh, was probably... Named the Sheep Gate because this is where the sheep headed for sacrifice, came into the city. So it's very near the temple. And uh, the high priest is the one who leads in the rebuilding effort. Other priests participate. Makes sense because who would be concerned about the Sheep Gate? Well, it would be the priests. That's an important part of what they do for the city. Now, some of you have been to Jerusalem before, so I thought I might at least give you if, you, if you have a good idea or a good grasp of the city and its gates, then maybe I can help orient you and where this is taking place in the city. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've probably been to the pools of Bethesda. And so this is where the Sheep Gate would be near. It would be near the pools of Bethesda. There we find St. Anne's Church, if you visit today. Um, probably if you were going in, you would enter by way of the Lion's Gate um, or St. Stephen's Gate. And, um, but that's not the Sheep Gate because that faces east. Uh, east. The sheep gate would have faced north, okay? But somewhere around that area. And when we go verses 1 through 5, the whole part of it is about rebuilding the northern part of the wall. So from the sheep gate, he also repairs the uh, fish gate and then uh, makes a turn in verse 6 and he starts talking about the western wall of the city. Works its way down. Uh, we have the old gate over there and all the way down to the towers of the furnace he describes in verse 11. Then in verse 13, he turns again, and he takes us along the southern wall. So we have the, uh, uh, the valley gate, and then the refuse gate, or the dung gate, as your version might say. And then verse 15 makes another turn, and it starts working its way up, describing to us the work taking place on the long eastern part of the wall. So if you're standing at the Mount of Olives, looking across at the eastern gate, that's the whole portion that's being described here in verses 15 through 31 32 makes the turn. He's back to the sheep gate. I know you wanted to know all that, but I felt like you should know this is real places. We can identify where a lot of this is, even though some of it's been lost a little bit to history, we can identify it. So on this huge wall, Nehemiah divides the work. It's been divided into about 45 work sites. 
uh, probably about 40 different groups of people that are working on it. He names about 38 specific people. He gives us about 17 different groups of people working on the wall. The point that's being made here, and we're not going to belabor this, is that it was an organized project. It would be very easy for us to get really confused about what's happening. And I know these students have been awake probably all weekend because of Lyft Tour. And it's like, Wes, you are just kind of lulling us to sleep, talking over and over. But what I want you to hear is it was organized project. But he's not doing this because he's concerned about safety and security, or merely concerned about safety and security inside the city. He is concerned because God's glory is in the mud. As long as the walls of Jerusalem have collapsed, as long as the gates are burned and laying in an ash heap, God's glory is um, is, in, is in the mud, is in the, the rubble, is in the ash heap, right along with the things that have been torn down. Because Nehemiah is primarily concerned about the glory of God, which is connected to the city of Jerusalem. Since the Babylonian captivity, the city of Jerusalem has been a reproach to God. Rather than declaring God's glory. I mean, you read all through the Psalms. I mean, it talks about the glory of Jerusalem. It's to point people towards this glorious God. But now it causes people to question and say, is he really that glorious? Look at his city. So rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was about restoring God's glory. As people saw Jerusalem in its ruined state, a natural question would be, well, what kind of God is he really? I mean, how glorious can he be if this is his choice city? Quite frankly, we can relate to that question. Because I imagine there are people who look at the church today and they think, well, if you are the people of God, why are there so many scandals in the church? I mean, how glorious can God actually be if his choice people and the movement that identifies with advancing him is covered in such shame? If it's so filthy, then how glorious can he really be? We live in an age where the church is desperate for restoration. Some people call that revival. But, you know, we can't really work up. We can't uh, manufacture a revival. We can only pray revival down because revival comes from God. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the spiritual walls of the church have collapsed. And it's evident because the people of God, not the people outside the church, the people inside the church have a low view of God. We are so casual about how we relate to God. He's kind of an afterthought. We give him our leftovers. He is not preeminent in our lives. I'm talking about the people of God. That's how we see him. Secondly, the people of God have a low view of holiness. We just look at God's commands and consider them to be maybe suggestions, if you want to. We think a lot of them as being outdated. We kind of explain the things we do rather than de uh, declare what they are, which is sin. We have a low view of holiness inside the church. We also have a low view of Christian responsibility. We think we are merely here to serve ourselves rather than him. There's a problem inside the church. And what I believe is the work of restoration, the work of revival is going to be evident when every member of the body of Christ does their part and works together as one to advance God's kingdom under the authority of Christ. That's what we're to do. So I would suggest to you, maybe the first place to start is on your knees. God, would you repair the walls that have collapsed around us? So we look here at the project that's taking place in Jerusalem. Now I want us to turn to the people that we see described in Nehemiah 3. Warren Wearsby says that as you read through this, it sounds a whole lot like the same people that are in the church today. 
So I want to see if you can figure out what he means. Verse 1 begins with Eliashib, the uh, high priest. He's the most important person that's mentioned in chapter 3. Eliashib, the whole high priest. Um, He's the spiritual leader of the people of Jerusalem. I mean, they had officials. They had um, uh, people that were in charge of businesses. But the representative between the people and God is the high priest. And he's not doing spiritual work here necessarily or what people would categorize as that. He's doing manual labor. His consecrated hands have turned to the manual labor on the wall. Now, I might should point out to you, just as we'll get ahead, um, I mean, if you read ahead, is that Elisha actually kind of turns against Nehemiah. He kind of unites with the enemy. And so it just kind of goes to show that some people start out working for the Lord. They turn against him over time. So Elisha, the priest, the high priest is working on the wall. We see other priests and temple workers on the wall. There are other officials and leaders. In fact, in verse 9, it mentions officials working on the wall. If you skim through verses 14 and 18, you'll discover more officials working on the wall. And what we find is when you're talking about working for the Lord, leaders set the example. I know in a lot of places, we think that leaders are to be above the fray. They're not supposed to be involved with the people. But in the church, in the kingdom of God, leaders are out with the people. Leaders set the example. The second thing I notice about the workers as I read through this text is that God uses all kinds of people. Verse 2, it says it's people from Jericho. So it's not just people living in Jerusalem. That's a whole other town, right? They come from there, travel to work on the wall. There are people from uh, from a lot of other places. We read about people from Tagoa, the Tekoites, people from uh, Gibeon and Mizpah, all kinds of people on the wall. And if you look at verse 3, you notice that there's a man, Hasanah. His sons are building a portion of the wall. They're at the fish gate. Um, But not only men worked on the wall. I want you to look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. So we see men and women working on the wall. We have priests. We have leaders. We have foreigners. We have locals. Um, All kinds of folks, men and women, working on the wall. And then in verse 8, the text says there's goldsmiths, there's perfumers. Verse 32 says there's merchants. It's clear this was a place where everybody had something they could do. It's the same thing in the church. We all have something to contribute to the work of God. Everybody is invited to serve. Everybody has a job they can do within the church of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that the text captures not only workers, but even shirkers. Verse 5 says, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Um, This is a good reminder that the Lord knows, the Lord sees. Some are not going to work, even though the work is important. Um, This happens in the church a lot. We have this 20-80 rule where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's not the way it should be because we're all gifted to serve in the church. But some people believe the church exists for me. It's there to make me comfortable, to take care of my needs, listen to my requests, do what I think you ought to do. But that's not what the members of the church are there to do, is not to be served, but to serve. And that is a matter that God is concerned with. Why is God so concerned with how we serve in the church? He's the one who gifts us. He's the one who deposits within us, puts an investment within us of the ability to serve. So, of course, he wants to inspect the return on that investment. And we can kind of see that taking place here in this text. Now, I want you to look with me at verse 10. 
Verse 10, the verse part of it says, And next to them, Jediah the son of Haramoth made repairs opposite his house. So some served at home. Now, this description of some workers serving on the wall near their home is, you see it all through the text if you read through the whole chapter. And I'm sure there's some practical reasons. I mean, because it cuts down on the commute, right? Some of you work near your home or you live near your work because you don't want to deal with the traffic. Well, it could have been the same thing. Um, I don't know what kind of traffic it was, but they were, you know, maybe concerned about that. So they work near their home. But I think practically it also has some other implication. See, if you're building the wall and your house is right behind you, you see the necessity for the wall. You're going to put maybe a little bit more elbow grease into it because you say this matters to me, not just to these folks, but to me. Not only that, if the enemy starts coming, you're going to be less likely to run. You're going to stand and defend. Why? Your family's behind you in that home. So there's probably some real good reasons of why they were working near their home. Whatever significance that phrase uh, has in this text, uh, the important thing here that I think we learn is that we all have work to do, spiritual work to do in the home. Andrew Peterson wrote and sings a song entitled Planting Trees. And the song is actually about parenting, but he calls it Planting Trees. It's kind of this uh, illustration that he uses. And when he explains why he wrote the song, he says that uh, he and his wife were at like a conference and they were going around the room and they were uh, asking this question. They specifically asked his wife, what are you currently doing for the kingdom to push back the darkness of the fall in our world? What are you currently doing to push back the darkness? And she answered, I'm raising my children in the Lord. You know, it's hard to imagine a more concentrated example of shedding light in the darkness as Christians by pouring the love of Christ into another human being than what a mother and a father does in raising their children. We must be reinforcing spiritual walls in the home. We can't just make sure they do something good at the church and send them down there for it. We've got to do it at the home. Another lesson learned from chapter 3 is that some do more than others. Verse 11, it says, Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section. We see that several times in the text. Another section. Because there were groups who, once they finished their work, they didn't quit. They realized there were other things to be done. What we should remember is that our responsibility is not necessarily to do just as much as everybody else is doing but to do as much as we can as long as God allows us to do it. I think that's a great illustration from the text. Finally, we also see that some people work harder than others. There's only one person described as zealously doing the work, and I think it's worth us reading his name into the record here. Verse 20, after him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, zealously repaired another section. Like the teacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us, we should be motivated, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's what Baruch was doing. And it's the same thing for us. If you find yourself serving in the kingdom, no half-heartedness there. Hand to the plow, work hard for the kingdom. The text reminds us that the people of God are meant to serve. God's people are the wall builders. God's people are to be builders of the wall. So Nehemiah and the people rebuild the wall. What's the point? So, so what? What, what? What's so important for us to learn today? Tim Keller, a pastor and writer, writes an article where he essentially reminds us that Nehemiah is pointing us toward the ultimate Nehemiah. He's pointing us towards the future. See, what we um, find in the book of Nehemiah is that the Jews uh, came back from exile. 
Uh, They rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They face opposition, but they stay with it. Uh, They put their hand to the plow. Uh, They organized. They prayed. And they did the work in what many would describe as record time uh, to get it done. And an easy and frequent application of this text is regarding leadership principles and organizational strategy. So we read this and we say, what's the moral of the story? Well, chapter 3, delegation. We've got to assign the work. If we want to be productive, we need different people doing different things. But Keller points out, this is how we read the scriptures if we, also, if we read it the same way we read like Aesop's fables, where we're just trying to pull out a moral from the story. But that's not how we're to read the t- scriptures. I want us to press in a little bit deeper into what is unfolding here in the book of Nehemiah. And to do that, we have to remind ourselves what we believe about the Bible. And the first thing I would say that we believe about the Bible is the Bible is a human book. What I mean is, it was not penned by divine beings. Like the Book of Mormon, it's claimed, was, div- uh, was penned by angels, you know, inscribed on golden plates. But that's not what we believe about the Scriptures. We believe ordinary men with flaws, with problems, with issues, put these words to paper. That's why we like to know a little bit about them. It helps us to understand what they're writing. It's why we are concerned with the language. We want to know the original meaning of words because they use the language. We want to know why or what it's communicating whenever it's written in a certain way because it's a human book. But the Bible is also a divine book. What I mean is we believe that every word in this book is there because God guided the human to write that word. That's what we believe. It's a human book, but it's a divine book. That means this book is without error. That means that this book is sufficient for the Christian to understand and know truth. It's a sufficient book for us. It also means it's not just a collection of stories. Because if we're reading it like a human book, we say, oh, wow, that's neat what happened then. Oh, wow, that's interesting what happened there. But if it is a divine book, that means it is one book telling one story. And the story that's being told here. And that Nehemiah, the role that Nehemiah is playing in this book is pointing us towards the ultimate Nehemiah. He's not just telling us the story of the rebuilding of the wall. He's pushing us to think beyond that, to something bigger, something greater. There's one who was at safe at home with the king of kings, and he left the security of the palace so that he could come and redeem and restore his people. What we might call the city of God. He left on a rescue mission to repair the city of God. And the one who did that is Jesus. He left heaven. He came to identify with people. He took on flesh. He walked with us. He walked with mankind. He experienced the grief and the frustrations and the disappointments of mankind. And he didn't just go at the risk of his own life. That's what Nehemiah did. He knew his life was going to be at risk. He went at the cost of his life because Jesus came knowing That in order to redeem and rebuild, he would have to die a sacrificial death. And that's exactly what he does on Calvary. He takes the nails. He dies so that we can be redeemed. So that the city of God can be built. So that he can rescue us and make us citizens of that city. Not of Jerusalem, but of the ultimate city. The city, the church. So in Nehemiah's day and prior to Christ's coming, Jerusalem is the city of God. Because God's work of salvation was going to be done through a nation state. And Jerusalem's the capital of that nation state. That's why the security of the city is so important. Because this is how God's going to redeem his people. We got to make sure this city is secure. 
It's why that he needed to make sure it was separated from outsiders. Because this city is holy unto the Lord. So we've got to keep out outsiders. We've got to divide. But the application here is not to say, and we've got to do the same thing. We've got to build walls around the church today. No, we don't do that. It's important that we build up one another, but we don't do that by building walls. We do that through the process of sanctification. Our responsibility is discipleship in that. So the people in the book of Nehemiah are building a temporary wall, a temporary city with a physical wall. Today, we as a church are building the ultimate eternal city, and we do that through conversion. So that brings us to chapter 3. What's the point here? What's he talking about here? Not the moral of the chapter, but what's the point here? We find in the text that everybody is doing the spiritual work of building the wall. I do think it's important enough to point out that in verse 16 it mentions Nehemiah. It's not the same Nehemiah. That's somebody else who has the same name. Because Nehemiah did not build the wall. The people built the wall. Nehemiah led the people. And what we read, the repeat, if you want to know the theme of this chapter, just start underlining what's repeated. What's repeated is next to them, next to him. After them, after him. It's side by side, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, the people of God doing the work of rebuilding the wall. And that's really different from what happens in the ancient scriptures. Because what was happening in the Old Testament generally was about one person, Moses and what he did. About David and what he did. But here, we don't just have clergy doing the work, we have the lay people doing the work. And I think that is pointing us towards what's going to happen in the future from Nehemiah's vantage point. When all of a sudden the glory that was located inside of that Holy of Holies is going to break out and it's going to be on the people. In fact, I think it's pointing to that moment whenever Christ is being crucified and he dies on Calvary and then the veil in the temple is rent from top to bottom and the glory now, symbolically we believe, is now um, leaving the temple and it's going to rest on God's people. See, the city that's being built is not brick and mortar. It's a city built with living stones. That's what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22. He says, The whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church, not the building, but the members of the church are living stones being fitted together into a living temple for God. And the Spirit now dwells in God's people. And not just in a city, and not just in a temple, and not just in a sanctuary. Not behind walls. If Nehemiah is pointing us towards the future, then I think the point of the text is to remind us that every Christian has a ministry. And we are made to work as one. See, Jerusalem could not be built with just the clergy doing the work. Well, it's the same way today. The task given to the church is not for the clergy. It's not just for the ordained ministers. It's for every member of the church. Every member ministers. Not just so-called professionals. You have a gift that's needed. You have a hand that is best fit for holding somebody else's hand because of what you've gone through in the past. You have the best opportunity to share the gospel with certain people that are around you. You have a role to play in the kingdom of heaven and specifically in the church. So where are you serving? Because we believe that every member ministers. Now this is my conviction. Unless all the gifts of the church are used, 
we will not be effective at what God has called us to do. The body of Christ is meant for service. It's not a place of rest. It's not a place of comfort. If you just come here and you think, you know, it just, it's so relaxing to come to church, then I'm going to tell you we probably need a little bit more elbow grease out of you. We probably need you to put your back into it. We need you to invest some tears. We need you to carry the burdens of one another. We need those weighty prayers prayed by you. Because the place, the church is to be a place of service where we are doing the work that God has called us to do. And not only that, it's not just for inside the church, it's for outside the church. It is the responsibility of the members to minister and to carry the gospel, to evangelize. Jerusalem could not have been rebuilt without one group serving next to another. No matter their differences, they shared something greater in common, the task of rebuilding the walls. We're a church filled with a lot of different people. But we have one overarching thing that unites us, and that's Jesus. That means we check everything else at the door. That means we don't come in here with our own, our own little crusades. We are coming to serve the church as God has called us to, to advance his kingdom, to spread the good news, to love, to help build one another up, to encourage. And we must remember that the Lord says we will be identified as his because of our love for one another. Someday we're all going to be gone and nearly forgotten. And may it be that as people reflect on the people of First Baptist Church, they say they loved. They loved each other. They loved the Lord. They loved others. So as the church, God's city, we're united in Christ, we're united by love, and we're united in mission. Heavenly Father, we, uh, all we can say is, Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? Father, we come to you with a broken um, uh, brokenness and problems and uh, preconceived notions and stubbornness and sin. And so, Lord, would you just cleanse us today and renew us for the good work you have prepared for us. But we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a time of decision, and so our choir's going to sing, and maybe where you are, you might need to come and kneel, but if God's doing work in your heart, maybe you need to come clean to the Lord. Maybe you need to respond to him for the first time and follow Jesus. Today's the day. As our choir sings, right where you are, you respond.